Hi, and welcome to Movements and Sounds, a podcast focusing on contemporary Indigenous musics and sounds in Australia and issues related to this topic. At SOAS Radio, we are excited to bring stories from the other side of the world to our studio in London. Thanks so much for listening to Movements and Sounds. I'm Charlotte, the facilitator of this podcast. It is important to know that I am a non-Indigenous person, however I support decolonization and giving land back to Indigenous peoples. The conversation you're about to listen to was recorded while one of today's guests, Gomroy Newman, was sitting outside in a park leaning against a tree. So the background noises you hear are the birds, and therefore the quality of the recording is a little rough, but I think this is a great setting for the particular conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it. Today's guests are Gumaroy Newman and Kina Wilkins. Gumaroy is a Gamiloroi and Waka Waka songman, musician, poet, MC, and cultural educator. He has performed around the world in ceremonies and concerts, amongst which the Glastonbury Festival. Kina Wilkins is a British-Australian Western classically trained flutist, pianist and composer and is a finalist in the Australian Art Music Awards for Individual Excellence in 2018 and 2021 again. She also performs around the world. And together they are Yuluki. Amazing. So a bit of a warm-up question. Um, how did your collaboration start? Yeah, so um, I... Um... I have been looking for, ever since I got to Australia 11 years ago, I was fascinated by the didgeridoo. And I've always been trying to find somebody who was a really virtuosic player and somebody who was a really nice person that I could collaborate with. We met at um, um, a show three years ago when um, Gumroy did the acknowledgement of country to a concert that I was accompanying. And that's when we met. And then afterwards I said, hey, do you want to have a jam? And we had a jam and I could just instinctively, I just knew this is really going to gel. This is really going to work. So I just went ahead and booked the show three months later. <laughs> and we met, I just made a couple of recordings on my phone. And before even our first show, we had an ABC radio interview. Everyone loved it. Like everyone just loved it. And we had, we've really, it's been going from strength to strength for the last two years. We get booked for so many. It's one of the most popular ensembles. I mean, I mean, I kind of do the, the managing and the booking, and it's just one of the most popular like ensembles that I've ever. It's yeah. I mean, we've been we've been contacted by heaps of festivals all over Australia. We played at Woodford Folk Festival um, two years ago. Uh, we opened the Australian Flute Festival before before COVID happened. We were going to be playing at Melbourne Recital Centre, Mona, and now that Sydney's opening up, we've got heaps of shows through. November and December and January. So yeah, we do improvised music. We 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 used to have a bit of a plan when we do shows, but over time we realized it actually works better if we have no plan. <laughs> just like we feel it in the moment and we just react to whatever each other's doing and everyone just loved it. But the other thing is that the, I think one of the reasons we get a lot of bookings is that not many people are doing what we do. And a lot of the feedback is that it's a really authentic merging of the two different styles and both styles are respectful of each other's like background and context and there's just not many other people doing what we're doing you know which, yeah. which is merging the two um very very different styles of music you know and i think because 
though I've been classically trained, what I would say is I've branched to so many different styles. I'm not really a classical musician anymore, uh, even though I respect it. It's not really what I do now. Um, but I think that a lot of classical musicians are not necessarily comfortable completely free improvising. And we launched our first album last year, and that went very, very well. Yeah, amazing. Can you tell something more about the album, content-wise? Um, it was recorded in three hours, one day. Wow! <laughs> it's just pure improvisations. We were contacted by this company called Earfest to record one piece for their online audio festival. And I thought, right, we're all in the same room. There's a great sound engineer. It's a great recording studio. I'm just going to book some more hours and we're just going to pump out an album. Because everyone has been saying to us for ages, have you got an album? Is anything on Spotify? I'd love to hear. And so, yeah, we, we did it all in half a day. It was straight improvisations. And we've been getting a great response. Yeah. What, what would you say, Gumroy? Yeah, well, I'm not a, I'm not a fussy musician. Um, one take is good enough for me if I... I can't get it the first time. I just wouldn't be bothered. Yeah. And I'll mention that, um, well, it's true. And um, even with my poetry, if I can't write a poem within half an hour, I just go bugger it. I, I couldn't be bothered. But yeah. for me, there's other things to do, like go fishing and hang out with my mates and stuff like that. So, yeah. And I mean, that's in all uh, truth and honesty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, longest poem, my longest poem I've ever written, I think, took me an hour 20. The longest, but uh, Mother Earth took me about 40 minutes, and Let's Be Grey took me about 15 minutes to write it when I was 19. So you have these songs yeah. for for re or poems for quite some time. Yeah. And you kept them. And um, yeah, but, well, I've lost the manuscript, <laughs> and I've retyped it many times, but lost it again because I normally live out of a backpack, and um, I've been living in uh, sand dunes. Um, you name it, I've, I've been there. Um, yeah, it's quite an interesting ride so far, yeah. Wow. From homelessness for years uh, to living all around the world with amazing uh, friends and musicians. That is amazing. Uh, all, uh, 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 no regrets. All in a backpack. All in a backpack, yep. If I can't, uh, if it doesn't fit in the backpack, I don't really want to know about it. Just keep things simple and keep moving. And Yeah, if I'm comfortable... I'll stay, which um, where I'm living now, I've been here for three years, so I'm very happy. And where is that now, where you are? Uh, it's a little, uh, well, it's right on the border of two um, suburbs called Waterloo and uh, Redfern. It's uh, the home where there's literally hundreds and hundreds of different uh, First Nations people. So uh, although we're descended, we come from at least maybe 40 different language groups. Everyone knows everybody, so it's a... Very comfortable feeling, and I absolutely love it here. Mm. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So I was wondering, you were just talking about Mother Earth, and I, I thought what was really beautiful is that you um, directed, or it seems like you direct your words to sort of different groups or different subjects. So you start with, hey, Mother Earth, is that you, my mother from days old? So sort of directed to Mother Earth. And then you turn yeah. and you start directing your words to maybe society or capitalism. What is it when you say they care not for your mom, they care yeah. not for your health? You just offer yeah. short-term solutions in the name of wealth. So who do you sort of direct That's, that piece to? Whoever wants to listen to, but listen to it. And uh, it's this simple. I imagine myself sitting down being a traditional man. I'll 
on particularly this land. So right now, both Kina and I were coming at you from a, a nation that they called Eora. And um, inside the boundaries of the Eora Nation, it's marked by um, four landmarks. Of course, Pacific Ocean to the east. To the north, you've got the Hawkesbury River. To the west, you've got the Nepean. And um, so I'm just laughing because I said to the west instead of the west. And, um, and then down south to the Georges River, inside there's 29 different uh, clan groups. So they have slightly different dialects within the mainstream language of what they call Eora. So I imagine, wonder what it would be like, because we believe in reincarnation. We're like the Buddhists and the Shinto people of Japan, etc. So we come back and we keep coming back and back again and again until we, we finally um, reach enlightenment, uh, if you want to call it that. And so I, I was imagining sitting down around... Uh, Jabba Gully, around where the modern day opera house is. And so um, I imagine, wonder what it would have, liked, would have looked like now, uh, then before the tall ship sailed in with the, with the English. And then I thought, wonder what happens, wonder what the people who lived back then that are now reincarnated now when they see all these buildings and, uh, you know, the, the landscape's totally changed. So it was written through the perspective of that. And then all of a sudden I jumped from a man that lived over 200 years ago to a man that's living now and his mother earth is unrecognisable. And I'm having a shot about, uh, yeah, the, the capitalists. So they care not for your mum, they care not for your health. You just offer short-term solutions all in the name of wealth. So obviously when I'm uh, having a shot at those people, I'm talking about a very small percentage of uh, Australian citizens and people that call this country their home because that's not indicative of a, a massive proportion of our population talking about the, the elite and the and the rich and yeah yeah the people who were just wiping out mother earth and her resources yeah. yeah 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 absolutely and how do you think um a song like that or a poem um, will reach those people like say the policymakers that you know you want to listen to words like that Do you think your your poem has has reached those kind of the, the right people that should listen? I'm not sure, but I've been invited to uh, lots of uh, readings. I've loaned that poem to uh, various uh, environmental action groups and uh, whoever wants to take it. It's just theirs. My philosophy is what's mine is yours. Because at the end of the day, I come from Mother Earth and I'll, I'll go back to Mother Earth. And so that's why... I choose to um, sit close to and, and be immersed, be uh, a part of Mother Earth. Look, yeah, there's a part of Mother Earth right there, yeah. <laughs> I am the tree, the tree is me, there's no differentiation. And so it's easier um, with this kind of thinking not to get caught up in your ego because, like I said, I've been homeless for over eight years, but then again I've stayed in five-star motels uh, or hotels all across the world, but it's all the same, I'm still within my body. Whether I'm hanging out with celebrities or I'm sitting down here in this park with my people and my friends or if I'm up on stage at Glastonbury, it's all the same to me. It's all a part of my journey. And in the end, um, I can't survive without Mother Earth. And then I need to consume Mother Earth in the sense as I need to eat from her. And then I need to look after her so she can give me food, water, shelter and protection. And even traditionally, you need to know Mother Earth and the geographical structures within Mother Earth because we have songs that are navigational. And so when we sing our songs, it's this easy. Coastal people sing like that because that's how the rivers and the mountains go. Desert people sing like that 
And when you're singing songs, when uh, you're traveling, you must see through your physical eye what you're singing about. So if I'm singing a song like that, guess what? I'm bloody lost. Simple as that. <laughs> and if I'm singing about uh, saltwater fish and I'm in the desert, I'm lost. It's that simple. So Mother Earth and all of its elements are our guardians and providers and Mother Earth and all of her animals are our teachers. So Keena, Keena can also tell you sometimes within the Yuligi shows we have special guest dancers and um, every dance and every song is not for just for aesthetics, it's for its educational purposes. Uh, our philosophy always is education before entertainment. Every song, every chant, every rhythm, every beat uh, the different octaves we go, uh, we use, etc. The different notes that we play, yiraki, which is the real word for didgeridoo, uh, has a symbolic meaning. Does that make sense? It, it totally does. I have a few uh, follow-up questions. So for listeners who couldn't see your, your hands, gestures, so you were saying the waves and the mountains are like this and the land yeah. is like this. So the, the first this <laughs> that we refer to is sort of, yeah, I guess mountains. How would that sound for you when you talk about certain... Yeah, so one of my songs that I, I, I've recorded um, with a band called Gangagiri If you look them up online, they're kind of like Yuligi, only they're, um, they're not quite as organic. Not that I'm making a comparison. I love working with Yuligi just as much as I did uh, singing with that band. But um, there's a song called Mari Gaba Yuga. And Mari means First Nations person. Gaba means mainstream Australian person. And Yuga means song. So black fella, white fella song or black white song. And so in that uh, song... I'm taking a section of land that is about 150 plus kilometers. So it starts up in the mountains and then it goes down onto the plains. And then it's uh, lots of little like uh, undulating, uh, undulation, so, so to speak. So, okay, so it'll go like this. Then I'm coming down off the mountains and I go. Then I go back and I return back up into the mountain. So it's uh, tracing my movements from point A to point Z. And mm -hmm. so within that, you're not just going to stay consistently rhythmically flat mm -hmm. unless you're in the desert. And you're not always going to be like that unless you're only on the coastline. You're not always going to be like that unless you're within the... The, the section of landscape that runs like that. Yeah. And then there's also another reason why I use my hands a lot. I can't, I can't help it. My grandfather's Italian. <laughs> so I just can't help but move my hands. Yeah. <laughs> and also for our English listeners out there, I am also English uh, descent as well. I come from the Harrisons. If you go onto uh, Google, you look up Henry Harrison. He was one of the last convicts... Um, here to Australia and he died at the age of 92. So there's a page called Descendants of Henry Harrison. He married an Aboriginal woman many, many generations ago. So I'm a, a product of his bloodline. Yeah, I see. Wow. That really shows the connections. Yeah. Right. Okay. So much information. You were talking about the symbolism of the sounds that you make. Um, and when I saw your performance on Friday, so I was, I was there as well online during Celestial Emu, you were playing the Yidaki And the animals that you were playing through that instrument, what is the significance of those animals and what is the meaning behind those sounds? 
Okay, so if I played a kangaroo, it's this simple. Our, uh, a lot of our words come from the basic principle of onomatopoeia. So a kangaroo is a bunda, 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 bunda. And I was doing the crow. The crow is a symbol of wisdom, but we also call the crow wak wak. Ah, ah. Or the kookaburra, uh, phonetically is called, and uh, onomatopoeically is called a bubur gagar. And so they all have their own uh, different meanings. But it's funny because a lot of Aussies and a lot of uh, people from all around the world, when they hear the, the kookaburra laugh, they think, wow, the kookaburra is laughing. It's so beautiful and it's so happy. Uh, you better stay out of its space because that's a territorial uh, thing, like get out of my space, otherwise I will hurt you. And uh, speaking from a personal experience, I've been attacked by a kookaburra before, and they can cause a lot of damage. So if you hear the kookaburra, there's either, and it also could be a friendly warning, there could be a snake right near you when it's, uh, it's, it's protecting you to get out of its, uh, get away because there's danger coming. Yeah, and is that what that meant during your performance of Celestial Emu? No, no, no. I just did that to fit in musically. I wasn't, no, no, no. Okay, okay, so it wasn't... Was definitely not my territory. Yeah. Me sitting there with an orchestra, no, that's not my territory. Um, uh, I won't say I was out of my comfort zone, but it was definitely a challenge and it was fantastic. But no, I wasn't telling everyone to get out of my space. I just did it because <laughs> I just thought it, it, it mixed in. Yeah, 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 yeah. so it's more in terms of sound. We, we never owned this place as land because Mother Earth really owns us. I... I, I believe I don't own anything. I'm just me. You also said that it really gave you, or you felt goosebumps, right? Yeah. During uh, performing, and the only other time you, you felt that is during corroborees. That yeah. gets so many questions. Uh, so for listeners who are not too... Well, um, we say corroboree in my language. We say eulogy. Eulogy, ah, there so you go. Yeah, celebration, dance, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Could you explain what that is, Yulugi or Kodobri, and, and what is your role usually in such a setting? Okay, so my role in the modern-day uh, ceremony, we'll call it Yulugi Kodobri, is um, either songman. So the songman is the equivalent of Sarah Grace. So the songman's conducting, or the songwoman, the lady singers. And then um, you have uh, the songman plays these sticks, which we call uh, a bilma. There's many, many different words for it. Then you have the dancers. And then the yidaki, or yigi yigi, many different names for it. It's just providing musical accompaniment for the songman and the dancers. So if that was a modern-day corroboree, Sarah Grace is the tribal elder, the traditional elder. She's running running, running the ceremony. Yeah, so Sarah Grace was then, uh, uh, conducting. Yep, and then all the musicians are... Uh, on their, on their instruments, they are there. And then there's little old me sitting there with my yidaki just providing musical accompaniment. The word didgeridoo is actually of Scottish origin. In their traditional language, it's e'jeridoo. And u, or uh, the Irish say didgeridov. So dove or u, I've uh, heard on uh, pretty good, good information that u or dove means black and e'jeri is a pipe. That's what I've been told by a gentleman from uh, Glasgow that he does uh, a program and he speaks his traditional language. So he goes, do you know what didgeridoo means? I go, well, I heard it means a black person playing pipe or a black pipe player. And he goes, yeah, it does. And so I can't uh, talk with a Scottish accent or I can't remember exactly how to say it, but in a nutshell he told me that the words didgeridoo uh, pronounced differently in his language means black pipe player. 
That's why I prefer to call it Yiraki, but I don't mind if people call it Didgeridoo because then everyone goes, oh, I know what it is and they can relate to it. Yeah. During that same Q&A on Friday, I, I asked about, uh, you know, the differences between Western classical settings and the rock bands that you also play in. You said that that setting was so special for you and it affected you because of things like um, you mentioned the silence, you mentioned the standing ovation. And do you think that perhaps it also worked the other way around? Like, do you think that perhaps your presence and the presence of the Yidaki did something uh, or affected the orchestral setting as well and that concert hall you were in? You'll have to ask the people in the audience. Or maybe Kina? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the Metropolitan Orchestra, they do a lot of European classics like Mozart, Haydn, Prokofiev, all that. Like their last concert six months ago, Telemann uh, Double Bass Concerto, which, you know, I, I highly respect. But, uh, but they also a really pioneering group in terms of um, showcasing us uh, modern contemporary Australian work. So they like to juxtaposition the old with the new. But they've never done a didgeridoo concerto before. And it's actually really, there have, There are not many. I think there's only like three or four that have ever been written. You know, partly because there's just so many, you know, stylistic and cultural divides. And But so I think that everyone recognized this is a really special, magical thing. And the feedback we got was just so much about how it just seemed like it was really authentically respectful of both cultures And, I mean, I really felt that too, because one thing that I'm really privileged about is that Gumroy does work with me. That's what's one of the most special things for me. And I really work hard to make sure that Gumroy is really happy with, with every single bit of the concerto. We're, we're going to be writing a second concerto as well. And I feel like, for me, it's really special that he is comfortable sharing the knowledge and sharing his culture with the whole process. Like it's, you know, it's a long process every time we, you know, when we write something like that. But yeah, I think, I so I think, I feel like that concerto was almost like a reflection of our, our collaboration as well. So, cause, cause he, even though technically I wrote it, obviously he, he wrote the did we do part, but also he came up with heaps and heaps of musical ideas that I kind of like orchestrated as well. So, yeah, I, I feel that what we have is really special and unusual, and I feel that people could see that. Even before I added the Yidaki, uh, Kina sent me the files without the Yidaki, and I would listen to it at least four or five times a day, and I'd walk through the streets with goosebumps anyway. So even without the Yidaki, it would still give me the goosebumps and uh, the, that spiritual feeling. And the only other time that I've um, felt that really, like, We've got amazing song, man. I'm, what I'm doing has been done for tens of thousands of years before, so I'm doing what, yeah. But um, the only other time when I've, like, welled up with tears in my eyes and goosebumps is when the Central Desert uh, traditional women sing. They've just got this uh, special sound, and that's what I, I, I felt. Even when in between my bits of Yudaki, when I was just sitting on stage waiting, I still had goosebumps. It was just like, mm, it was, like, so powerful. Why do you think that is? The closest I've been to Tchaikovsky, Mozart, you know, you, you guys, Keen, have got uh, Bach, as in B-A-C-H, we've got Bach, as in B-A-R-K, paper Bach, and I'm Bach. That's the closest I've ever been to Bach. So it was new for me, and I quite enjoyed it. And to get the respect uh, from 
such a, like a high quality professional world renowned musicians is pretty humbling. Because going back yeah. just two two generations ago, my mother and father, um, you know how we have lockdown here? They were locked down and they weren't even allowed to leave the the reserve that they were on. They just had to stay there for years and years. So for me now travelling the world, collaborating with musicians such as Tina and uh, all the other great musicians that I collaborate with, I'm a pretty lucky guy. Yeah. So past generations have really paved that path for you, you can say. Exactly. And I always give credit to them. Yeah. I've been yes. taught by eight different traditional and uh, contemporary didgeridoo masters. And uh, the style that I'm playing now is my own. Uh, I've created it with my own grandmother's language on my dad's side. But let me say this, you'll never hear me play in my solo shows what I play with the Yulipi shows or the Metropolitan Orchestra because it challenges me to change my styles. And that's what I that's what I enjoyed. The sequences and the rhythms I was playing, can you imagine like a fully grown man trying to do a karate to that? Impossible. So it, it was a challenge and I probably listened to it at least 20 times and I, I still love it as much as the first time that I heard the replay. So in a nutshell, I'm saying you'll never hear me play like I do within a eulogy show or a metropolitan orchestra show unless you see me within that context because I don't play solo rhythms like that or I don't play uh, karate rhythms like that. Yeah, and and Sina, you were... You so were... it's refreshing. Um, I, I was just going to say that with my compositional process, I have the initial idea and then I feel like I'm channeling something greater and I feel like I let it write itself. And I feel like even, even like on Friday night, I was listening to it and I was thinking, oh yeah, that's... I really love listening to it as well, even though I wrote it and all that, and, you know, we wrote it. But because, yeah, there's something magical about it, and I really did feel like I was channeling something deeper. So what happens now when I write my music is I come up, you know, I brainstorm the initial idea with whoever I'm collaborating with, and then I feel like I'm tapping in, and I just let it write itself, because, like, it wants to be written. Like, this piece just wants to be written, and I just have to take my ego out and just listen and let it let it let it come out and that's the same thing that happens in improvising i try not to think too much and i think gumroy is the same like when you're in the zone i think all improvising musicians are the same when you're in the zone you take away the ego take away the thought and you just let it let it come out whatever's gonna whatever's there to come out just let it come out release it yeah and perhaps i'm also thinking yeah like and that that whole sort of flow and that natural way of you bringing these worlds together and also your own you know um personal styles i think is that maybe perhaps why it was so well received tina allowed me to express myself to the optimum level of my ability and so i go to people like i go look man if you didn't like the way i played the didgeridoo and that uh, concerto well i can't do any better i left 100 percent <laughs> out there on the stage if you think i'm a crap player well then i'm a crap player i respect your opinion because that was me at my best Because normally I'm a really fussy Capricorn and I'm like, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. But I honestly can say I played at my best for that yeah. uh, setting. Like Keena was saying, keep when your ego out, no time for thinking. It's I liken that to um, probably why I talk a bit silly because I'm an ex-boxer for many, many years. And so even when you're in a boxing ring, in a, in a boxing match, you can't think. You just got to instinctually be. And you either do this or do that without thought. It's just uh, automatically uh, reactionary. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm, totally. And it also makes sense yeah. when you say, well, this was actually something funny because after that concert, you said that you, you don't read music. So you did this all by ear. 
so impressive. But what I found really, really, really interesting, you did bring a little piece of paper with you on the stage. Yeah, so that, yeah. that was my, what was that? So that was like some rough notes, like for example, movement one, improvisation one minute, and then he had some stuff to say, dinner one, dinner one, like he had stuff to say, so there's a few little cues, but just written out in words, but that was all he needed, he probably didn't even need that, because there were some sections that were improvised. Yes, I did. Oh, you did? <laughs> okay. I so did was, need the notes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there were bits that were cued and, and, and really thoroughly rehearsed and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on stage, I just needed to know when to start and stop. Within that start and stop period, I might have played different rhythms on the particular yeah. night. And I, I never do have set rhythms. I just listen and I just go with it. Yeah. And that's why the didgeridoo is such, such a simple instrument to play. So if I listen to a drummer, I might think the drummer's going... So I'll, I'll spit those same uh, phrases down down the tube of the didgeridoo. It's that simple. It's just it's just uh, mouth percussion rather than hand percussion. <laughs> well, it sounds very impressive it's very to basic me. for me. Um, well, I've been playing for um, probably about as many years as Keen has been on this uh, wonderful earth. And I don't even know how old she is and I don't want to know how old she is, but let's just say <laughs> I've been playing this instrument for well over 30 years. I'm well over 30. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. I didn't know, and so it's none of my business, but um, I always say, just imagine trying to play an instrument like this, and 33 years later, you think, man, I'm crap, I've just wasted 33 years of my life, so yeah. No, I think it sounds really beautifully, and um, I was so, so impressed, and so, so I had so much joy listening to it all. I, I sort of had a, another quick question about this piece, Celestial Emu. Uh, this is actually for Kina. You have a strong interest in astronomy, the stars. And so in a piece like Celestial Emu, I was wondering, how do you then incorporate your own personal interests in astronomy together with the indigenous astronomical knowledge? How do you blend those together and then in music? Because it was about the emu in the sky, as she yeah. told. I guess, I guess so I was basing the three movements on the different stages of how the, the constellation changes in the sky and also the Gamilaroi legend around that. So I was kind of roughly basing it on that. But right at the beginning, for example, um, when Gumaroi walks on stage and then some cellos come in, some horns come in, right at the beginning what I was envisioning is this idea of space between the, you know, the earth, and the sky wants to create that kind of like idea of like the abyss almost like the abyss of, of outer space and then kind of like coming into the story of, of the emu in the sky so i guess in this particular sense it's more it's more about the legend of the constellation and then trying to create the idea of, of like a grand story that takes over the earth and the sky yeah that's why she named uh, the three different stages like emu egg, emu dancing, etc. And so just in a nutshell, uh, Charlotte, if you're not already aware, that our people discovered tens of thousands of years ago that when they looked up into the black mass of the Milky Way, they went right to the front of the Southern Cross and they, not the stars itself, but all the black mass, you could actually see the male emus sitting down on the eggs, incubating the eggs. Because the male emu, the male cassowary and all the big flightless birds 
it's the male that has to look after them. And so that's why I love that when she suggested, how about we call it dinner one? Because the dinner one, well, dinner means foot, one means protruding or lumpy. So when you look at the emu, they've got big lumps on their feet on the top. And so when you look up into the sky, roughly around May, June, you'll see that male emu. And that tells you that when you go out into the bush where the emus still run wild and roam free, you can see that that's when you can go and get a feed of eggs. Even if there's 10 up to 15 eggs, you only take one or two and you leave the rest for the dad to hatch to ensure the future generations. So that's why I snapped, I jumped at the idea when she suggests we call it uh, Celestial Emu as well. I go, yep, perfect, let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm from uh, Cape York yeah. and then I'm from uh, Southwest Queensland. That's my other language group. So right up the top of way up past Cairns, and then Southwest Queensland and the Gamilaroi people, which uh, Keena based the piece on, we're northwest New South Wales into southern Queensland. We're the second largest language group located in the modern-day uh, landmass of New South Wales. Yeah. And the language we speak is Gamal Arai. So this is even more beautiful when I, when I think about this. Gamal means no, Arai means having. So what is mine is yours. So if we're in a traditional setting, and I've got a certain tool or a weapon or a piece of um, clothing or a certain type of food or medicine, and Kina or Charlotte wants it, it's under, I'm under traditional obligation to say, yeah, it's okay, you can, you, you, uh, I have to give it to you without expecting back. So gamalarai means no having. Just keep things simple. When Kina says keeping the ego out of it, we haven't got a chance to get egotistical. We're still uh, accountable to our elders and our parents and our grandparents and, and our colleagues and peers. Yeah. About Let's Be Grey, I'll quote one, one more line again uh, of, of your poem. So it says, um, so long as you're a beautiful person, you're not black or white, you're just grey. And I always laugh at that because I am going grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's, anyway, it's very true in the literal <laughs> sense. <laughs> Don't worry, same here. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I was wondering, did you also experience backlash? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, can you you elaborate? Okay, so a couple of uh, First Nations elders go, well, I'm proud to be black. I don't want to be grey. I'm Aboriginal. And so, well, that's okay. I still love you. Come here, give me a cuddle and, you know, and then once I go, sit down, Auntie, I'll tell you the reason why it's a metaphor. I'm, I'm saying metaphorically, don't judge people for being black or white. Simply, let's be great. You can be Australian First Nations, you can be Japanese, you can be Spanish, Italian, whatever your heritage is, but stand up and be proud of that. Just don't bring the colour of the skin into it. That's all it is. Yep. Yeah, uh, to answer your question, I've had a couple of um, friends, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and say, wake up yourself. I'm, I'm a bad black person. I go, well, that's fantastic. But before I'm black or before I'm white, I am Google Yao, I am Waka Waka, I am Gamilaroi, I am English and I am Italian, and I'm proud of all those things. And like I always say, I like looking like this. I'm not the typical... Uh, National Geographic type look for First Nations people here. And I like looking like this because it tweaks uh, people's uh, curiosity. Where are you from? And I've met a lot of my best friends uh, simply because they thought I was from their culture. 
I've met South Americans, I've met Mexicans, I've met Arabic friends, all because they thought I was one of their people. And I, I, I don't uh, take offense to that. But that's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Be your spiritual self before your physical being, your shell. And then also looking like this, I say it as a joke, but it's actually a fact. Myself and my dear friend Dave, who is also a special guest dancer for Yuligi, we always play games. We take our separate seats on trains and buses and see who wants to sit next to us uh, first. And so far, I'm the winner, sad to say, because now uh, First Nations people are, are being looked upon as pretty cool. And because I've oh, got wow. uh, the other look, I won't go into depth here. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they'll sit uh, with him before they'll sit with me. And then old Job, I say, see, us black fellas haven't got it too bad, eh, brother? And he just laughs. What, what do you think about that? You know what? It doesn't worry me. Yeah. If you love me, I'll love you back. If you hate me, I'll still love you back. Like the old saying goes, just smile and wave, blow kisses. Kina, a question for you, because you also told me you're working on a different project, which is uh, going yeah. to be released really soon. This is together with Jalal Mahimede. So he's a, a poet and he's been detained for nine years as a refugee in Australia. Um, yeah. yeah, could you tell us how this project started? I've always been in and out of refugee advocacy, but I, you know, I had kids seven years ago, so I haven't been able to do that much when the kids are young. But I'm part of this Facebook group around Sydney refugee advocates, and he happened to post some of his art and poetry on there. And um, I've been looking for lyric for, for words for an opera, so I just wrote to him saying, "Hey, your poetry is really good. I'm looking for some some poetry for you for an opera. Like, would you be interested in in collaborating?" And he said yes. And then Sydney lockdown hit, and um, suddenly I had nothing on for three months at all. And then we kind of got chatting, and um, obviously I had no idea, first of all, how to approach his past. You know, I don't know anything about. I think I knew, I know a little bit, but I wouldn't want to. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable or anything. So we just talked about poetry for a while, and then because Sydney lockdown hit, I just thought, well, how can I? You know, obviously a, there's not going to be an opera made for ages because that's gonna, that's a, that's you know that's going to take quite a few people and stuff. So I thought, well, how can I make this work? And we just had some jams with his poetry, actually, and music, just like me and Gumroy had done. And I just thought, yeah, I can make that work. And then as I talked to more musicians about it, more and more musicians wanted to get involved. Gumroy is on the track as well. We use some of our, our Yulugi stuff that we've recorded a while ago. And uh, even my kids are on it, my neighbor's kids. <laughs> and then basically all my favorite people in Sydney, and actually someone in Perth, is, is on the album. Yeah, and even and um, a previous guest in the podcast as well. You told me, right, Dobby? Yeah. Dobby is on the... Uh... Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's on it too. Yes, yeah, we, we, yeah Ryan's doing his... Who, Dobby? Yes, he is, he is on that project. And he was a guest in the podcast as well. Isn't that just a coincidence? So we're talking about Jalal. Yeah, Jalal, yeah. sorry. Jalal, yeah. He arrived nine years ago by boat seeking protection from Australia. He was immediately detained on Christmas Island, then Nauru, and now Australian Detention Centre. He has never been tried. He has never been charged. He has never committed any crimes, and he is still locked up in jail, and he has no idea when he's going to be released. The policy is that as soon as somebody arrives by boat, they're labelled illegal even though that goes against international refugee law. 
nine years of his young life, he only got here when he was 26, uh, taken away. There's massive psychological and physical problems associated with long-term confinement. Um, conditions on Nauru are really, really atrocious. There have been a lot of suicides because they don't know when they're going to get out. There's, uh, there's not even that many of them left. There were 5,000 nine years ago. And then America took some, Canada took some, New Zealand took some. Um, but there's like this group that just missed the quota, right? Because there was a cutoff number of where all the other countries would take. And there's only 300 of them left. So I think it's really tragic the, what he's been through. Through all this pain, uh, he's created this really beautiful poetry and drawings. He's an artist as well. And so the show on Wednesday, it's going to be his, his poetry that I've recorded via Zoom from his prison cell and his artworks projected. And then it's going to be a Yulubi show as well. And Dr. Graham Tom from Amnesty International is also going to be speaking at the event. And one of the, one of the first reason I, I'm doing this, first of all, is that he's, he's a really great artist and he's a great poet. And second of all, I want to raise awareness of this, of this terrible situation that I believe the government is trying to hide. A lot of these detention centers are hidden away. They don't even have signs on them. And I want to raise awareness so that, you know, people kind of are aware of this stuff and vote with their conscience. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's hard to sort of, well, how to even respond? Like, isn't it bizarre? Nine, nine years of a young person's life. Um, yeah. A young person's life. He is Arab Awazi, which are a persecuted minority in Iran. He's got refugee status. He got that within a few years. So he's a certified refugee. He has no affiliations with any dangerous religious organizations. He has no history of violence. So I just think, I hope he gets released soon and all the rest of them get released because a lot of them are in this situation and they're yeah. very, very upset and tired and angry. And then what happens in Australia is even when they do get released, because of the policy of never resettling refugees, they're only released on these bridging visas, which means they don't get, they don't get any access to Medicare. They often get hardly any support at all. Uh, they're set up to have a really hard life and possibly fail, especially after all the psychological damage from the long-term imprisonment. Okay, so they often end up relying on charities and they can become homeless or worse. And it's just very, very hard for them. I just think it's really sad that this is how Australia treats people because the irony is Western people came here by boats. This is the irony. And I just think it's really sad that they have this fear, you know. I, I, I just feel like at the root of it, it's racism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is this what drives you in your project? So also in uh, Yulugi, you know, like your music and your project, they're all very much about so social injustices, environmental injustices. Is this this force behind your music making? Um, yeah, where, where is that coming from for you? Um, yeah, I guess some of my music is ends up being related, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. Um, some of it's not, not all of it is though. Like I have a, I have um, another ensemble that's about space music and I have a solo show that's like bark interpretations and all kinds of stuff. I guess the first thing I look for is someone who's a great collaborator. And like, like such as Gamroy, like someone I can work with who's nice, who's incredibly talented and who has something really interesting to bring to the table like I just I just want someone to have an interesting story and I kind of seek out those people in this really selfish way and I'm like yeah I want that <laughs> I want that I want to work with that <laughs> and like try and like collaborate
something new with it. That's that's what I find exciting. And if people like it, great. <laughs> if they don't, I don't really care. I just still, I just still want to do it. Yeah. Whereas I think some people they're a bit fixated on what sells, and I just like I, I I do it just because as an artist I want to create something new and different, and it's something that I find exciting. So what I really like about Gilmore is he's coming from a completely different like background, you know, in terms of music. But it still works. It's just, and it's creating something new and exciting. And obviously, I don't think there's enough Indigenous, like, high-profile artists around. And if I can help in some small way, I mean, Gumaroy is already a very established, experienced Yudaki player who has played in many, many different, you know, concerts all over the world. But if I can, like, help in some small way, yeah, that, that's, an ad, that's absolutely an added bonus. I feel like, you know, because I'm half Australian, but I'm also half English, but I also think there is such a lot of ignorance in mainstream Australian culture about Indigenous people and Indigenous culture. And I feel like I almost like, almost the more I get to know Gumroy, almost like I feel like the more I don't know, because it's like, it's, it's such it's such a thing that it's not really taught very well in school. There's so much ignorance. And I just think that's really sad. I think that's really shameful. And I think that it should be much a much more important part of education because so much of Australian history, they just they just focus on white settlement. Certainly when I went to school here, disgusting. It's it should change, you know. It change. And I think it's changing a little bit, but it should change a lot faster, you know. And acknowledgement of the terrible terrible atrocities that went on you know more involvement i don't know how you feel about that Gamoy. i was gonna ask yeah yeah things are uh, slowly changing um they're getting acknowledged uh, more ever so slightly but you know uh, it's better than not at all they're introducing uh, language programs for the little kids to learn all my language that i speak I, i've learned it orally because i just found it too misleading uh reading it through books because lingu linguistically and phonetically it wasn't always uh, on point but there's so many different dialects within a mainstream language what else can i say um once again if you like me you like me if you don't it doesn't matter i'm not gonna harbor any hatred i know there's a lot of racism still out there but it doesn't matter because racism is only born out of fear the unknowing and in saying that I've got so many Australian friends that I'm the first uh, First Nations uh, person they've ever met. Well, mm. that doesn't, doesn't matter then. Let me be the first, but definitely not the last. And, and I, I can be the bridge. I can connect you to whoever you want. Yeah, and so as the old yeah. saying goes, uh, better late than never. My best friend, I was the first uh, First Nations person uh, she's ever met. Now we've had a wonderful friendship for about nine years. And now she works for uh, our First Nations um uh, a company here, and she's got literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, First Nations uh, very good friends. But, you know, we get called black this and black that, but, you know, it, it also goes the other way. My people say, oh, white this and white that. So, yeah, it's a very it's a very um, touchy subject, so to speak, but I don't really want to go too much into it. Yeah, because I'm just me. I'm mm. me before I'm a black fella or a white fella, before I'm an Aboriginal uh human or a musician or before I'm an Englishman or whatever. I'm just me. I don't get uh, caught up with that. But in, in saying that, uh, going back to what I was saying before, the only limitations I would have is like hailing down a taxi because I look like this or getting into a nightclub or or whatever. But that doesn't worry me because 
because musically there's no limitation. Um, I'm not sure. I think I've been to 30 countries, maybe more, maybe less. I don't really, I haven't really sat down and counted them. But go back just one generation ago, and even my grandparents' generation, they weren't even allowed to leave the confines of the missions uh, set up by the missionaries, 32 acres, by 32, you know, 32. And um, unless a certain few privilege would have these things called ticket of exemptions, and they would specify, you're only allowed to out for this amount of time, you're not allowed to talk to this person, you're not allowed to talk to that person. And so that's why I can sympathise with Jalal and, uh, and, and, and the plight that he's stuck in. Because my uh, grandparents' generation, some of those people weren't just for nine years, bless the poor brother, it was their whole life. They were in lockdown and they were told what to do. The ironic thing is um, we went and did a, a launch at uh, one of the cinemas here in, in town and there's an, uh, an Aboriginal elder, uh, her name's Auntie Millie and I won't mention her last name, and she's uh, like a, a really powerful leader here for the, the local Sydney people here, the First Nations. And it was all about First Nations girls who want to train to be astrophysicists eventually maybe uh, go to the go to the moon in a, in a space shuttle. Wow. But anyway, oh. she walks into the cinema and they said, Arnie Millie, you've got to sit up the back of the cinema, of the theatre, because there's no seat. She goes, well, I'll be bugger. That's the first time ever I was allowed to sit uh, up the back. Because even in my mother and father's generation, when they went to the picture shows or the, or the movie theatres, they had to wait until... The, the movie started and they were ushered in and they had to sit right down the front so the security guards can watch their every move. And then they had to leave before the end of the movie. And so that's the sort of conditions they had to uh, live in and they were given like uh, rations of flour, tea, uh, blankets, etc., like that. I guess this is why we have a close connection even to this day uh, with, the, with the minority groups like the Asians or the... Uh, well, that's why uh, we married into the Chinese... And the Lebanese up home, well, where I'm from, my hometown, we weren't allowed to be served in a lot of shops. But the people like the Lebanese, hey, brother, sis, come over here. We'll look after them. So in, uh, even to this day, there, there's a lot of uh, reciprocity, if that's the, the right word. Like, okay, you Lebanese fellows, you look after my grandfathers and grandmothers, so that, therefore I'll look after you. And so uh, another funny story in, in within a few seconds is that I played Yiraki or didgeridoo for an Aboriginal bride that I don't know. I never met her because she was married to a, she was getting married to a Lebanese guy. I walked in there in the after part of the day. You know, when Lebanese people are going, Yom Kimori, there's lots of beautiful Lebanese people. And if it wasn't for your great grandfathers and brothers and your, your relatives, uh, our people couldn't uh, survive just on rations alone. And so there, there's been a, a tight bond with, uh, groups like that. And then um, to fascinate them even further, I go, well, I've been to Lebanon and I've I, I had the privilege of being hosted by uh, dignitaries over there. I go, and they, and they even said, well, you know what? Going back one generation, you couldn't do that. Eh? I go, you're absolutely right. So yeah, things are, are slowly getting better and I'm very, I'm very grateful. I just want more people to listen to the music of the here and now. Music that is created by, you know, living composers, living musicians. Music that really celebrates, you know, lots of different cultures because it's just it's just more interesting. I mean, you know, the, the classical training, there is a lot more to music and life than that. Mm. And I think 
really sad when you know when uh, as a culture and musically in classical music as well when people fixate on the past the distant past and and in the case of australia not not even australian past like it's not even you know so yeah i just hope people you know have their taste broadened because it is much more fun it is much more exciting you know and if in any small way i can kind of like help share the culture and help demystify it a bit because one of the really generous things that Gumaroy does is he talks about his culture when we do the shows he talks about his culture he talks about the stories and everyone is like loves it and i just hope there's more of it yeah one more project that i was going to ask about is the recognition in anthem it's it's an organization that proposes changes in the verses of australia's anthem yeah. so um it's yeah. to include first nations people because it's not the case yeah. at the moment no. so what no. was the experience for you working on this project for you both they pulled us in at the last minute they'd already done five years of consultations all around australia with leading in indigenous communities like do our consultation with indigenous communities and the wider community and it's led by this quite high profile high court judge he's he's a qc and he's a high court judge he's retired but quite recently he's still quite involved in law and he does a lot of presentations and stuff his name's peter vickery he was leading the project but there was a whole team of people that worked all over the country and like I said like leading indigenous members of the community and stuff like that as well and they came up with these lyrics that were very similar to the original lyrics the first verse is nearly the same but the second and third verses are, are quite different it's acknowledging the actual real past because at the moment the the anthem is just embarrassing it's just like entirely like oh everything started 200 years ago yeah by sea you know young that's all I say to people like just acknowledge, I think, uh, there's a big problem in, in acknowledging because people feel guilty. They and, do. Uh, they think you point the finger at them. I go, brother, sister, we're not saying, were you around 200 plus years ago when this country was invaded and forcibly taken? They didn't rock up in their beautiful big tall ship just by coincidence and just say, oh, hey, black fellows, can we have your land? Yeah, no worries, cuz, come over. You can have it, you can take it over. There was massacres, there was slaughters. Just say, yes, I acknowledge that tens of thousands of uh, traditional custodians of this land were wiped out and murdered. But you don't have to take responsibility. I took it up to a school where my mum, uh, she works in a school up in my hometown, and the Aboriginal elders were crying when they heard this rendition of the National Anthem because there was an acknowledgement. Yeah. Because the language now literally, um, like it's, it, it says, for 60,000 years and more, first people of this land, sustained by country, dreaming told by song and artist. Like it literally talks about, um, and, and what about now this new anthem? Um, is it going to be revised? It's in talks like with Parliament trying to push it through. But I mean, the, the first verse was changed a little bit one year ago. So instead of we are young and free, it's we are one and free. Because the young bit was about only 200 years ago. So they changed one word in the first verse, but the, the other two verses, he's working on it. But you, I mean, you know, being a judge and a QC, he's doing it in all the official channels, but it could take a long time. I personally think Scott Morrison is un unlikely to, given his background and given his other behaviours with this kind of thing, I, I think it's unlikely. But maybe if there's a new pm or maybe we'll get we'll get lucky but i think i think i think the point is yeah. like eventually we're gonna win right you know but we've all got to work so. together 
we've all got to work together. It's a gradual shift, you know. It's just like this thing I'm doing with Jalal, I don't know if it's going to help him. I've had legal advice. It could yeah. help him because it's, it's celebrating his art and it's showing people he's just a normal person. You know, he's not evil. He's not illiterate. I mean, that's what some politicians have said about the boat people. They're illiterate. Ah. They're coming to steal our jobs. That is literally a quote from a politician. They just want to wear Armani shirts. I mean, it, you know. That's I mean, what that they say about us. Yeah, I just want to show people he's a completely lovely, normal person in a terrible situation. And he should be let out just like the rest of them. But yeah, and, and so, so, you know, even with that project, this project, just in some small way, like creating like a really positive kind of experience for people and education, you know, around issues that a lot of people are quite ignorant about. And I think that's really, that's really sad because, because it's about, it's, it's about them, like not understanding their own country and their own government when these issues are suppressed so much in the media, you know? Like one of my elders said, he goes, hey, nephew, he goes, look at our prime minister. Let's go take them out of the desert and strip them naked and take away their money and their key card. See how educated they are. When the basic need for survival kicks into motion, how are they going to survive? Not well. Absolutely. No. That would be such a good task, wouldn't oh, it? I didn't know you need to. I didn't know you need to know song lines and I didn't know you need to know which plants were poisonous and medicinal and can be used for this and that. Yeah. Okay, who's the educated one now? We don't judge you guys having university degrees good on you i'm yeah. happy for you and that's what you so desire well done yeah and it's ridiculous sometimes how we rely on certain papers right so i'm also a, a part of that system i'm doing a phd right as you know but it's it's interesting how i can read a book about philosophy but i have absolutely no idea how to keep a plant alive isn't that just a problem like we're absolutely not educated on how to yeah. care at least I am not in the global well, north. We're not, you know, in, in the Netherlands, in England. Final question. Um, so for listeners, if they want to follow you, where are you online in the online spaces these days? Uh, so we've got a website, ulugi.com. And we're also, we've got an album on Spotify. We're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Y-U-L-U-G-I, yep. Yeah, anyone can check out our website, get in touch. UK, Netherlands. We'd love to do a tour sometime. All of Europe. Yeah, let's make it happen. Let, let's manifest Absolutely, this. Absolutely, yeah. All right. I mean, this has been such an honor, such a joy. I'm really happy. Thanks so much for taking all this time. I know you're really busy. Well, thank you, Val. Thank you. Hopefully see you soon. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> okay, bye, Charlotte. Bye-bye. See bye. you on Wednesday, Kina. Here's a track of their album, Chasing Stars to the Mother Tree. If you've paid attention, you'll probably hear a lot of the musical elements that we just talked about. This is Chasing Stars. Enjoy.
Thanks for listening to Movements and Sounds. This is a not-for-profit podcast. However, thanks to the SOAS Student Enterprise Fund, for every episode a donation will be made to SeedMob, an indigenous-led organization in Australia fighting for climate justice. Find out more about this incredible organization on seedmob.org.au. See you at the next episode.